welcome back to the podcast. And I'm excited to share this call with you today. I'm going to be talking with John Viveki. And I think the conversation we're going to have today really can set a powerful context for why I feel and why we feel at Coaches Rising that coaches can play a very important role in our times, helping us to navigate these times that we are in towards a place of human flourishing. So we're going to talk about the meaning crisis. If you didn't see yet John's work on the meaning crisis on YouTube, I highly recommend you check that out. So we'll talk about what is the meaning crisis? How has modern culture led to the experience of the meaning crisis? What are some of the different facets of that? What are different ways of knowing that we are being invited to um, recapture or to embody that can help us to find meaning to avoid bullshitting ourselves. I say that in inverted commas. That's a specific philosophical term that John will explain. Stop bullshitting ourselves and to begin to be able to cultivate wisdom and insight. And uh, that's the business that we're in as coaches. I think a lot of the things we're exploring today are highly relevant. This is the work we're being called to do. John will make an impassioned plea for that. And we're really going to go into why there is a proliferation, an explosion of interest in mindfulness, in phenomenological practices, in in, in dialogical practices, things like circling, authentic relating, inquiry, that are inviting us into a kind of ever-deepening phenomenological experience, a revelation of our experience. A few more words on John. John is a lecturer at the University of Toronto, cognitive science. He is an author of Zombies in Western culture and just a really a a brilliant mind and thinker so we're in great hands all right so let's dive in here's the podcast with john viveki so john good to be with you uh how's things with you today uh uh, good to be with you joel it's it's really good um things are really um exciting for me right now i'm doing a lot i mean i'm still working uh, you know, full-time research at, at the University of Toronto, but I'm getting stuff published. And uh, we've, t- with working with Madeline Abramian, we've turned uh, the first half of Awakening to the Meaning Crisis into a book, and we're seeking publication right now. And um, I'm, I've, I just wrapped up my second uh, smaller COGSI series uh, called The Elusive Eye, The Nature and Function of the Self. And now I'm, I'm entering in because it looks like COVID's going to break here finally, because, you know, I've got my two shots of vaccine and all that. I'm going to be able to really start the uh, final deep, and I'm really doing it very deeply, preparations for the big uh, lecture series after Socrates, which is, uh, that's, I'm really looking forward to it. So there's a lot happening for me right now, and it's very exciting. Right, right, good. Well, then I, I hope our conversation today is going to uh, inspire people to, and I'm sure it will, to actually delve into your work more deeply. Those of uh, the people listening that haven't discovered it already, and I can highly recommend those resources you've you've just mentioned. Uh, I'm also uh, just thinking back to a, a beautiful call you did in Tapestry with Amanda Blake and the energy between you two yeah. and the the yeah. insights there. So um, yeah. I'm excited about our conversation today. Me too. Me too. Yes, I, I really enjoyed the discussion with Amanda. Yeah. Um, so, well, let me ask you, I think it's a good place to begin, which is the meaning crisis. And so perhaps you could 
speak about your work around the meaning crisis. Like, what what do you mean by the meaning crisis and how modern culture has contributed to us being in this place? And I wonder how you're feeling now. I think it's been like a couple of years since you put that out. Like, where your thinking is at around the meaning crisis now? Like, um, because, you know, it's only a couple of years, but time's going fast these days, so... Yeah. Sure is, and there's there's important signs. I mean, it's mostly you know observational, but uh, I think it'll be borne out by more rigorous studies because more rigorous studies are coming out that COVID has really accelerated many of the fact many of the features and factors of the meaning crisis. But what do I mean by that? And I want to acknowledge you know joint work here done with uh, Christopher Master Pietro, uh, Philip Misovic, but uh, you know Chris and I have especially done. A lot of work in the um, in the intervening two years. Um, so there's a couple of ways of looking at it. It's almost, if you'll allow me, a medical analogy. The, there's a bit of a, a diagnosis and a prognosis and then a prescription. Uh, so um, the diagnosis is to point out sort of a whole bunch of things that seem to be happening, and people often have an intuitive awareness of this, sometimes a little bit more explicit, that can be all you know, jointly explained together. You can call this sort of the symptoms of the meaning crisis. We can do a symptomology of it. So you see, you know, the increase in uh, suicide, um, uh, especially among uh, the, the younger people and oddly in areas uh, where there's a lot of affluence like Silicon Valley. And so um, an important thing to note about that is that Tatiana Schnell has done work showing that you can get the suicide independent of clinical depression. I mean, often the meaninglessness and the, uh, the, the clinical depression are bound together, but you can get the suicide sort of coming directly off a sense of a lack of meaning. Um, and we know that this is pervasive. There was a 2017 uh, survey done in the UK, 89% uh, of people think their lives are absolutely meaningless, um, which is astonishing. And the problem with that is we have lots of independent evidence from psychology and cognitive science that meaning is very much a, a, a nutritive and prophylactic. It prevents anxiety and depression and despair uh, and, uh, and all kinds of uh, psychosomatic symptomology. And so uh, there's that. And then, of course, as I've alluded, of course, it spills over into what's being called and increasingly recognized uh, the universities, in a sense, saw it first. Universities are often the canary in the coal mine kind of thing, uh, which is the mental health crisis. Um, just the massive increase in depression, anxiety, um, other kinds of related disorders. And then overlapping with that is there's, you know, a huge amount of loneliness now, uh, which is not being ameliorated. In fact, is being exacerbated by social media. That's what the evidence shows. So while people are more connected, um, they are less in touch with other people, if, I'll, if you'll allow me two metaphors. And then overlapping with all of that is we see the addiction crises that seem to be spiraling out of control. And I think we're now moving to a more existential learning model of addiction, given the work of Mark Lewis showing how much uh, uh, addiction is a, 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 a symptom of a lack of meaning. We'll have to talk about what that meaning means in a few minutes. Um, and then you see, uh, you know, related phenomena, which is people getting addicted to social media. And then that also overlaps with what's called 
the virtual exodus, people preferring to spend the time online and in games rather than in touch with reality because they feel that reality is broken in some fashion. And then the rise of, uh, rise of a lot of pseudo-religious behavior. Uh, we are venerating Bronze Age deities in the superhero phenomena. Uh, we express a lot of the more negative uh, 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 things in the in the mythology of the zombie and the zombie apocalypse, and those two and those two mythologies are now talking to each other and intersecting with with each other. Um, we have the pervasive rise of, you know. Cynicism and nihilism as pe people's default um, sort of orientation to the world. Uh, and uh, we got the adoption of pseudo-religious ideologies that are taking over uh, the culture, which are, you know, it, it, they, they claim to be comprehensive and complete narratives explaining all of the world's ills and the single one or two things we have to do in order to alleviate all of our suffering. So they, they, right, and so you get the simultaneous weirdness of people are increasingly politically and religiously disenfranchised there, but at the same time, everything is politicized. And so that weird paradox is also an indication. As I just indicated, another symptom is uh, the decline in religious participation of any significance, the growing demographic of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, people who have no official religious affiliation or identity. Most of those people are not new atheists, uh, contrary to what Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins might want. Most of them are spiritual, but not religious. And if they're, they're seeking to cultivate all kinds of practices to alleviate uh, the suffering and the distress of a lack of meaning in their life. You see some positive responses to positive symptoms. Uh, the mindfulness revolution, it's worthy of mm -hmm. criticism, but nevertheless, the phenomena is there. Uh, you see the rise of ancient, uh, uh, philosophies as a way of life, like Sto the return of Stoicism, or the attempt to, to import Buddhism or Taoism. Uh, all of these are symptoms of uh, the, 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 the explosion of the self-help industry in various forms. All of these are symptoms of the fact that something is fundamentally wrong at the level uh, at which people are feeling connected to themselves, connected to each other, and connected to the world. That's the symptomology of the meaning crisis. Um, and then we can get into sort of the prognosis, the attempt to explain what's going on in there. And, um, you know, you know, what are the, what's causing that? What are the, what you might call the, the, the structural, uh, the, the, the cognitive processes driving it and what are the historical forces driving it? That, and that would give us a prognosis, but perhaps I'll stop before I go into the prognosis after doing the symptomology and give you a chance to ask some questions. Well, I think that's a, that's a good place to go. I'm just reflecting on, yeah, it, it does seem like on the one hand, it's like everything's going downhill, you know, there's this yeah. uh, collapse of, of me meaning and, and rise in nihilism. And at the same time, you know, maybe it's the bubble I'm in, but there's this explosion in interest in things like yep. mindfulness and movement yeah. and yep. uh, meditation and things. And so um, whether, whether that is the, you know, that explosion in mindfulness or so on is the, is the antidote to meaning or is another symptom. I'm curious about that, but, um, I'm, yeah, I'm guess I'm curious to know like what, what's happened, like uh, how come we've ended up in this place? Well, I mean, part of it has to do with, uh, the, the way we're, we're talking, uh, part of it has to do with Part of answering, that's what I'm trying to say, I'm stumbling, I'm sorry, I apologize, is to get a little bit clear about what we mean by this meaning. 
One way to think about it is to think about kind of its opposite. Uh, so one of the things we tracked in the book on, on the, that Chris and Philip and I wrote on the zombies um, and how they're the expression, our culture's current. Uh, Deleuze said the, the zombie is the only 20th century uh, myth, right? Uh, because it's, it's novel to us, it's, right? Um, and one of the things we tracked was the rise of, of the sense of bullshit. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to be vulgar here. I'm using that term in a very technical sense. I'm alluding to the seminal essay written by the philosopher Harry Frankfurt called On Bullshit, in which he distinguished between the liar and the bullshitter. Um, and the thing about the, the, the bull, bullshitter, bullshitting, and the, the sense, the pervade, and, and people just more and more have this sense that there's so much bullshit and it's just growing and growing. Like that is a reliable thing you can, like, just try it. Do you think there's more bullshit? Like, oh, yes, yes. And people just, they do, and they have this, you know, considerable confidence uh, in that claim. So what is it to bullshit? Well, um, it's interesting because there's a sense in which you could, with the discovery of this goes back to Socrates. But what Frankfurt argued is that the liar cares about you caring about the truth. When I lie to you, I'm, ba I'm banking on the fact that you will change your behavior if you come to believe that something is true. Now, I tell you something that's not true, but I'm trying to convince you that it's true precisely to manipulate your behavior. And of course, that makes it, that's what makes it a vice, right? I'm telling you something that's false and I'm misleading you. Now, what Frankfurt argued, and it was really interesting, is he argued that, um, well, the bullshitter is doing something different. The bullshitter is trying to get you uh, indifferent to whether or not a claim is true and instead get you caught up in how attractive it is to you, how salient it is to you, how much it gathers your attention. Now, that's really important because the thing about the liar, I mean, it gets complicated when you're a liar, you know, what, what a tangled web we weave and all that sort of thing. But generally, you can lie without it, you know, sinking back into you. Um, the thing about bullshitting is it's very easy to bullshit yourself. You see, you can't really lie to yourself. Well, you know, I, I, I believe that, uh, you know, everybody loves me. Yeah, I'll just believe that. Belief doesn't work that way. Right. And so people talk, we use this metaphor of lying to yourself, but you're not really doing that. Uh, what you're typically doing is you're trying to make something salient because although you can't lie to yourself, you can bullshit yourself. Here's why. Think about uh, a classic example, an advertisement. Advertising, advertisement is bullshit. The one of the reasons why we feel that bullshit is so pervasive is that advertising is spreading and pervading our lives and we are turning ourselves into advertisements. See, so you watch, uh, uh, one of my favorite examples is you, you watch an, you know, a, a commercial for some, uh, a beer, some beer, and the, here's a really attractive person, and there's a bunch of attractive people around them, and they all look so healthy, and they're all smiling and laughing, and it's the beer, and you know that's false. You know it's false. Go into a bar, spend some time with people who are drinking beer. Like, it, that's not how it looks. So that's not, in fact, it often looks very much different than that. You know it's. It's not true. They know you know it's not true. And that's the point, because you don't care whether or not it's true. Instead, you're attracted to these attractive people and this delicious looking beer and the social effervescence and the omnipresence of sexuality. And all of that makes the beer super salient. And so what, why, why do they pay the millions of dollars? Because that works. That makes you buy the beer. You've been, right? So, so notice what you're doing. 
you know it's not true and they know in fact there'll be commercials where they make where they make fun of the fact that it's not true and it's all humorous and funny and it doesn't matter because it's not about the truth all that matters is how salient it is now the thing about salience is you can actually affect it you can bullshit yourself mm. because you can change salience with your attention salience what do you mean by that word salience as well oh yeah salience like see what i just did there i clapped my hands so what happens is that stands out for you it grabs your attention. There's a moment of arousal when I do that, right? That's salience. It grabs you. When the, when the attractive people come into the center of the screen and they're all laughing, right? And this wonderful music is playing, that grabs your attention, that arouses your, your, you metabolically, right? Perhaps even sexually, right? Uh, and so that's salience. Now, salience catches your attention, just like when I... But... You can, so salience will draw your attention, but salience can also make, your attention can also make something salient. So if I say to you, your right shoulder, hey, how's your right shoulder doing? Whoa, now it's salient to you, it stands out. So notice what you can do. I can take something that's not salient, I can make you attend to it, and then it becomes more salient, which means now it's more likely to catch your attention. And if I keep doing it, you'll keep being drawn to it because you see what's happening here? Mm. And to those listening, you're now pull, holding up the TV remote <laughs> yeah. and pointing to it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, so nice. so yeah. notice how you get caught, right? You, and so what you can do is do this, you, right? You, so I pay attention to the beer. And so now when I go into the beer store, it's more likely to catch my attention. And because it catches my attention, I'm more likely to choose it over the other beers that I'm ignoring. And you thereby, see, so... What's that telling you? That's telling you that what's happening is your attempt, things are, your, your, your tracking of salience has been disconnected from your tracking of reality. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, That's like in some sense it's inauthentic or. Yes, yes. So you're not, right? You're not, your salience machinery is not helping you to track the way things really are and the way things are really important to, to you. Because in the end, right, a lot of things we're, we, we are, for example, advertising manipulates us into a lot of things that we come to realize that most of them are not actually that important to us or needed by us, but we get caught up in an addictive relation. Okay, so what's going on there? Bullshit is anti meaning or the loss it's the depravity of meaning we are being deprived of meaning because what's happening is our our ability to track the truth has been disconnected from how salient how we are paying attention to things okay so why is this an important issue for us and i'm getting now towards what how meaning is the opposite of this okay the meaning i'm talking about we're using a metaphor from language the way a sentence means in order to try and pick up on something about how our attention and our attitude connects us to the world, to each other and to ourselves. Okay, so a sentence coheres together and it connects you and the world together such that if the sentence is true, you are, you are finding the real patterns in the world. Okay, so what's the analogy with attention? Well, here's the, where I got to introduce one sort of somewhat technical cognitive scientific idea, but it's the core of my scientific work which is the idea of relevance realization. Here's the basic idea. Now, speaking very technically, the amount of information that is available to you at any moment, and I'm not talking about just because of social media, I'm talking about even if you're just sitting outside, right? The amount of information, 
the number of things you could pay attention to, the number of patterns you could pick up on in the world is astronomically vast. You can't pay attention to it all. And so, and, and the amount of information you carry in long-term memory is vast. And then how the possible ways you could connect that information in your head, the information out in the world, and then the, the connections between what's in your head and what's in the world, that's also astronomically vast. So this is not what you do. You don't, uh, you don't attend to all of that information in your mind. You're not doing it right now. Are you going through all the words you know? No, right? Uh, and are you paying attention to it? Well, I, I think I'll track all the wrinkles in the couch behind John that he's sitting on, right? You could. You could see if there's a pattern to those wrinkles and see if, that, if the wrinkles, patterns in the wrinkles on my couch correspond to anything in the color in the painting. You could do that, but you, why don't you? Why isn't it salient to you? Because something in you is before you're and way below the level of awareness is saying that's irrelevant. It's not even considering it. You don't consider all those things and rule them out because of, there's way too much. Somehow, and this is almost like a Zen Cohen, you intelligently ignore most of the information. You're doing it right now. It's like magic. It's the thing that fascinates me about cognition. Somehow out of all of that information and all the combinations and all, you're zeroing in on the relevant information. That's what I argue, and I've published on this, and I keep arguing, presenting on it, and, right? That that's the core of your general intelligence. That's the thing that makes you an intelligent agent. That's the thing that allows you to solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. That's relevance realization. It's absolutely adaptive. It's absolutely essential to your, to your intelligent cognitive agency. But there's a price you pay for it adaptivity always comes with a price, which is you are ignoring a vast amount of information, right? Which means sometimes you're ignoring the information. So you're bringing into salience information that is not actually the needed information for solving your problem. And you know, when you've done this, you'll be working at some problem and ah, I'm just not getting it just not getting it. And then you go, oh, of course. And you have an insight and you realize that you were treating something, right? You were ignoring something that was relevant or you were treating something as salient that turned out to not be relevant. You were bullshitting yourself, right? So the very processes that connect us to the world, make us intelligent agents capable of solving a wide variety of problems and a wide variety of domains. That's a fundamental kind of constitutive connectedness are also the processes that make you perpetually vulnerable to bullshit, to being bullshitted by others and to bullshitting yourself. Self-deceptive, self-destructive, other deceptive, other destructive behavior. That's foolishness to put an ancient term on it, right? Now, and, there's, and because relevance realization is in everything you do, there is no domain of your life. This is like, you know, um, the first noble truth of Buddhism. Realize that everything is pervaded. Everything is threatened by dukkha. There is no part of your life where you can say, well, in that part of my life, I'm free from the, pro the po possibility of self-deception or self-destruction. There is no such domain. And all of the attempts, all of the pseudo-religious ideological attempts to find the absolute secure faculty. My imagination will never deceive me. My heart will never deceive me. My reason will never deceive me. My de ideology will never deceive me deceive me. My moral judgment will never deceive me. That's just all super salient bullshit. Instead, what we need, which is what the ancient religious 
traditions uh, had when they were working adaptively, I would argue, is we need an ecology of practices that cultivate wisdom. Because it's pervasive throughout your life, one practice, one intervention isn't going to work. Because the processes at work are complex and dynamic and self-organizing and largely going on below your conscious awareness, one intervention isn't going to work. You need an ecology of practices that will systematically and systemically reduce how you are susceptible to bullshit, self-deceptive, other deceptive, self-destructive, other destructive behavior, and will afford keeping your salience machinery tracking what's real so that you are genuinely connected to yourself, to each other, and to the world. That's what meaning in life is. It's that connectedness, the way things hang together, make sense, like a sentence, and we fit them, and they fit us, and we are tracking the real patterns. We are Right, right. We are we are opening up. We are falling in love, in fact, with reality. So, the prognosis of the meaning crisis is: we are suffering a wisdom famine. You know where to go for information. Jeez, there's no paucity of that. You still think you might know where to go for knowledge, maybe science, history, right? Where do you go for wisdom? If I could interject, because I, I imagine you're yeah. going to say, I just want to make sure yeah, no, please, if, please. if people listening to this, coaches listening to this, oh, uh, my wish is that you can hear the deep relevance of what you've just shared there, John, with the work yeah. we do as coaches, because I think we can play a role in helping people uh, to 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 stop bullshitting, to, to find meaning. And I just get a sense of like how, as you speak, that, we're, we're kind of impoverished. We've created a superficiality in our lives. Perhaps our like capacity to discern, to have wisdom, to find meaning has uh, been, you know, clogged up, you know, so to speak yeah. by all this yeah. bullshit and um, that we've at the same time, and I know you speak about this and, and then you, I, I want to kind of let you carry on about will, wisdom, but <laughs> that we've also, I think in the mix here, you speak about how we've relied on um, propositional knowing, you know, yeah. I think, yes. Yeah. And that's playing out here as well, that, that actually yeah. we've, we've impoverished how we perceive the ourselves and the world. And, yeah. and so, yeah. Well, let, let's do two. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a little bit, I don't know, I'll be assertive. It's not necessarily aggressive. I don't think not only can you or could you, I would say there's something stronger. And I want to really challenge your listeners. I think that all of you should be using your opportunities and your skills and your virtues and your tools to be helping people address the meaning crisis. I'm gonna, I'm, I know I, I, that's a little bit assertive, but I, I, I feel this on I myself, so it's, I'm not excluding I myself. I think the, one of the most overriding moral obligations and existential commitments, existential demands on all of us, and especially on us who have the opportunity and the power to make a difference is to help people address the meaning crisis. I think, in, in, and I, I notice I'm including myself because I'm a teacher, I'm a coach, I do all these things. So I'm not excluding myself from this. But I think to the degree to which we're not doing that, we're ultimately failing in our deepest responsibility as professionals who have the power to make a difference in this very pervasive and uh, this very pervasive crisis that is causing increasing amounts of suffering and is exacerbating and undermining our attempts. It's exacerbating the meta crisis and undermining our attempts to deal with the other crises we're facing, the, you know, the 
the, the political gridlock, the socioeconomic disparity, the environmental collapse, all of this. So if we're not doing something, I mean, like, again, I want to be provocative here because there's a sense of urgency that I have about around this. Like, if, like, how do we sleep at night if we're not making this a priority in our work? Like, how? How? So, uh, sorry, I, I, like, you're, I'm your guest. I love it. I don't, I love I, I don't, it. I don't want to trespass on your hospitality. But, like, anyways... So th that was to address that point. The, 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 and, and then you made a fantastic point that I want to follow up on, uh, which is um, when, when I talk about these processes of connectedness, of zeroing in on right, uh, what's relevant, what matters. And notice now we, we're talking the language that really is about existential meaning. How, how do things matter to us? How do we matter to things? When we're talking about that, right? We're largely not talking, although we use a propositional metaphor, like the meaning of a sentence, the, pro the, pro the, the, uh, the processes we're talking about are largely, the processes of relevance realization are largely sub-propositional. They're taking place in, in other kinds of knowing that, precede and provide for propositional knowing so we could just define again like propositional knowing is like knowing yeah. about things you know knowing yeah it's about, knowing that yeah. it's knowing it's knowing yeah. that so yeah. um it's the kind of knowing that you express in sentences when those sentences express propositions we have to distinguish between sentences and propositions because sentences are in particular language in english or french but the we can we know that english and french can mean the same thing and that's what we mean by the proposition, the same claim they're making about what's true. So in English, I can say, you know, the cat is on the map, but I could say equivalent in French or German or some language that does not yet exist. So when we're talking about proposition. We're talking, uh, although we express it in sentence, we're talking about this way in which you are trying to connect to reality by a mentally asserting a truth. I mean, there's a lot of complication there, but I'm, I'm just trying to. So you know that cats are mammals. You do. And what and how what is that knowing for you? Well, it's you believe it and you believe that it's true. So the knowing is knowing that some proposition is true and you believe that it's true. So it's about belief and it's about how beliefs uh, give us access to the world by being true. Now, I'm a scientist. Right. So I want to be very clear about this. I really care about propositional knowing. I really care about uh, you know, the best theory and the best evidence to get us the best beliefs that have the most plausibility and the most probability of being true. I think that's really important because people misunderstand me about this. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem is that most of the meaning making machinery, the existential meaning, the meaning in life is not carried at the propositional level. And our culture, for lots of historical reasons, which we also should talk about briefly, has reduced all of our access to reality to the possession having pro of propositions that are true. And that's why we fight these political ideological battles because we are convinced that that is all that there is about us. But I've already shown you that that's not what's driving your behavior. Remember the beer commercial. It wasn't a matter of belief. It was a matter of salience, right? It's, and that's a different thing. So let's talk about the other kinds of knowing and how they put us into this realm. 
Notice in order to state the propositions, you actually have to have a bunch of skills. You have to be able to speak a language. You have to be able to follow a conversation. You have to be able to uh, you know, pay attention in the right way. There's lots of know-how. You have to know how to pay attention. You have to know how to speak, right? And so that should open you up to uh, the whole realm of what's called procedural knowing. This is the knowing, this is not knowing that, this is knowing how. This is knowing how to catch a ball. This is knowing how to kiss somebody appropriately, right? Right. So you have to know, right? The, 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 and this isn't about beliefs. This is about skills. And skills aren't true or false. Is, your, is my skill of Tai Chi Chuan true? What? No. What, what is I'm looking for? I'm looking for, is my skill apt? Does it empower me? Does it put me into a fluent and you know, reliable capacity to causally interact with the world with my sensory motor behavior. That's what a skill is. It's not a belief. And notice already I'm now talking about how I'm connected to the world through my sensory motor interactions. But notice something. I talked about a skill, a skill of you know, knowing how to kiss someone. But it's not just knowing how to kiss them, is it? You gotta know where, when, right? And who you are and who they are, right? So this is called situational awareness. Now, what this is, is this is your salience landscaping. This is, and what I mean by that is what's standing out for you. So a way of thinking about uh, this, this is called perspectival knowing, is to, it's the kind of knowing that's not carried in beliefs or skills. It's carried in points, points of view. What's your point of view right now? Right, you're, you you have a particular here nowness meanness, you're right, and and that's what's salient to you, what your backgrounding and foregrounding, what your state of mind is, and what does all this give you? It gives you situational awareness. And the situational awareness is what tells you whether or not it's right to engage your skill of kissing the person right now, and you might want to top it off with some propositional statements like "I love you" or something like that. You see how it's all going together, you have to have the perspectival knowing. It's carried in perspectives, states of mind. Notice how your perspectival knowing would be different if you were drunk right now. Things would, would your salience landscaping would be altered, your sense of what's here and what's now. Now, propositional knowing gives us truth. Procedural knowing gives us power. Perspectival knowing gives us something that we're becoming much more aware about as we're moving into the virtual world. In fact, they talk about it. I've just published a paper with Dan Chapian uh, frontiers uh, of psychology on the sense of presence. The, the, the way the NASA scientists use the rover on Mars, but still get a sense as, as if they are on Mars. It's really cool and interesting how they do that, right? So you have a sense of presence. That's what they look for in video games. The sense of realness isn't, do I believe the things about the game? Because you don't even believe it because it's a game. Do I have the right skills? Well, yeah, that matters. But you can have the skills and you don't have the sense of presence. And the world you're in doesn't have to be very realistic. It could be Tetris. Instead, what's the sense of presence? It's that sense of getting the right perspectival knowing so you get what's called an optimal grip. So I'm holding up an object right now. I'm holding up my remote again. And what am I doing with my attention and my salience landscaping? Well, I'm try I, can I can zoom in for detail, but I lose right? The whole thing, I lose the forest for the trees, or I can zoom out, right? And I don't have to be moving the object. I can do that with my attention to get the, the forest, but not the trees. 
And, and those are in a trade-off relationship. So what am I doing with my salience landscaping? How am I generating a sense of presence? I'm trying to get what Marlo Ponti called the optimal grip. I'm trying to get the best balance between the whole and the parts for the task at hand right now. So if I'm gonna use it to change the volume on my TV, I optimally grip it in one way, but if I wanted to use it as a weapon to throw at somebody who's entered my apartment inappropriately, I'm gonna optimally grip it another way, no pun intended. You see, that's your sense of presence. That's your hmm. situational awareness. And you know that by the way, when you're talking to people, you can have people that are spewing propositions you believe and they're carrying out the right social skills and you can tell they're a thousand miles away. They're absent as they're talking with you. They're not present. They're not with you. They're right. They're not affording you a sense of presence and situational engagement. They're not optimally gripping you on, and, and they are not allowing you to optimally grip them. That's perspectival knowing. That's your situational awareness. So your situational awareness, your salience landscaping, your perspectival generation of points of view and their accompanying states of mind is dependent on you, the identity you are assuming right now and the identities you're assigning. There's a process of co-identification. So right now, I'm assuming the identity of a scientist and I'm assigning the identity to you of an interviewer and an interlocutor. Now, if I took that relationship, if I assumed that identity and did that assigning of identities as I came into you know, uh, the presence, notice the presence, of my romantic partner, that would be really messing things up. Because if I assume that identity and sign that, uh, that's gonna go, I'm, I'm, I'm in the wrong existential mode. So this level of knowing is the, is the, is the level of knowing by how you're, how, if you'll allow me to turn it into a verb, how you're existentially moding. The ident, this process of co-identification, how you're assuming and assigning identities. Chris and Philip and I talked about it as the agent arena relationship. I'm assuming a particular identity, a particular kind of agency in the world, and I'm assigning a particular set of identities to the world so that, that correspond to that agency, an arena. There's an agent arena relationship. And those identities are shaped, and of course, we're endlessly arguing right now about the shaping of identity. Precisely, I would argue, because we have some dim sense that participatory knowing is lacking for us, but we're deeply confused because we're trying to solve it at the propositional level. Somehow, if we, if we use words the right way, we will, sat, we will get clarity about uh, propos, uh, participatory knowing. But instead, you have to do the kind of deep practices found in Buddhism and Taoism and Neoplatonism, Stoicism that actually get you to that level. So this is the participatory level. This is the way you know by, by being. Your self-knowledge and your knowledge of the world are inexorably bound up together. As I assume the identity of a scientist, right, and assign the identity of, you know, an interlocutor, an interviewer, I'm creating, I'm creating what are called affordances. I'm creating ways in which the world and I are co-shaped so that particular actions, particular forms of agency are afforded to me in the world. So, for example your listeners can't see it, but I'm grasping this cup right now, right? So I, right, all of a sudden I became a cup grasper and this became a cup, which is a thing that's graspable. Notice that's not part of its physics. There's nothing, there's no entity in physics called a cup, but what is, I'm assigning it an identity as a cup. I'm becoming a cup grasper. I'm shaping myself, right? I'm assuming an identity and I'm assigning an identity and now it affords grasp 
graspability. Is the graspability in the cup? No. Is the graspability in me in the hand? No. It's in that how I and this physical object have now been co-shaped by evolution and culture and technology and my current cognition to fit each other. So this is graspable to me. So the participatory knowing makes affordances by the process of co-identification. Some of those affordances are in this moment made salient by perspectival knowing, giving you a situational awareness. That situational awareness tells you when, where to apply your skills. So you apply your skills in your know-how. Your know-how gets you causally interacting with the world, and that gives you the evidence you need to change your beliefs in your propositional knowing. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and I, I want to, uh, let me ask some questions for my own benefit as well. So yeah. just to tease out a bit more how uh, that brings meaning in the way that was missing before when we only had the propositional knowing, because, you know, somebody listening might say, well, okay, you know, I go to my job as a teacher in a classroom and, you know, I'm, a, I'm an agent, I'm a teacher in the arena, the classroom, yeah. and I'm, I'm doing that already, aren't I? You know, yeah. so how come... I'm not experiencing meaning there, you know, so, well, yeah, what, what's, yeah. So the point is, of course, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not having an absolute depravity of meaning because like, think about culture shock where you go to a, another place and you try to assume identities and you can't because none of the identities, none of the, the agency identities don't track with any of, you know, the, the way the arena is being laid out by the people around you. And so you feel culture shock and that's weird. And you have to go through this process of transformation and enculturation. That's why deep travel right, or moving to another place can be so deeply transformative of us, right? So the problem is not that we don't have it because when you, when you absolutely lack it, you can feel like tremendous, right? And when you lack presence, you feel alienated. And, and, and also when, the, when, like when, you, when you can't get your perspectives to coordinate with each other, you can feel absurdity. So what I want, what I, how do you answer your question? What, what is I'm saying is you always have these running to some degree. You have to, or you, you're not going to be a cognitive agent. And I'm pointing to instances, extreme situations where you can, you can sense that you are losing even the everyday functioning of these things. Right, right. Okay, now the meaning crisis for various historical reasons, one way of thinking about it is you need an ecology of practices to deal with what can undermine your procedural, perspectival, and participatory knowing and the way they're aligning. Bullshitting yourself, deceiving yourself, foolishness. This is why people go into therapy. They know at the propositional level, I shouldn't be treating people this way. I shouldn't be believing, having these thoughts, but they don't know how to change them. They don't know the states of mind they don't know this, what it's like to be present in, that, in the right way. And they don't know how to transform their identity, right? So they come in with propositional power. No, that's the wrong way to put it. They come in with propositional truth. They have to know, but they don't know how to get. Let me show you an example of this. Somebody comes into therapy and they say, you say, well, what's wrong? Like, I'm so, I'm so stubborn. Like, I just, I find I'm very inflexible and it's really hampering my, you know, my work life and, and my friendships and my, my relationships. I just, I want to not be so stubborn. And so they got this proposition and, and you say, oh, okay. And, you know, and, and, 
And so, and then you talk to them for a while and you, you get them off topic. And then you, you just say, you know, I've had training in therapy. You say, tell me something about yourself you really like. And we'll say, you know what? I, I'm really persistent. I keep going with at things no matter what. I won't give up. And what they don't realize is those are just the same thing under two different aspects, stubbornness and persistence. And they can't make the perspectival, see that, notice the length, they don't know how to connect these two perspectives, these two aspects, so that they can see their relationship, so that they can understand what's below those two aspects within the identity they're seeking and the, uh, uh, they are unable to get to. Do you see? So that, yeah. that's a kind of foolishness. And so what we had is we had entire ecologies of practiceness that allowed us to cultivate wisdom, ameliorate foolishness, and enhance our connectedness to ourselves and each other, the world, foolishness. But they were almost always homed within a comprehensive religious worldview. We have lost that. Now, I'm, I, and I'm not, I'm not here as an atheist or anything like that saying, you know, all these religions are silly. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's just a demographic fact that for most people, the N-O-N-E-S, most people are abandoning, increasingly so, organized religions. And even the people who are in religion are increasingly unsatisfied with this capacity to give them meaning in life. That doesn't mean that there aren't people within religious traditions that are cultivating wisdom and finding meaning. I am not denying that. I'm talking about the you know, the, the, the probabilities here. So we have, we are in a wisdom famine. So we do not have an ecology of practices that is properly homed in the cosmos and legitimated for us with a tradition and with the relevant guides and guidance to cultivate wisdom, to cultivate the ecology of practices we'll give us. So all of these lower level, we're like the person going to the therapy. We're, we're hanging on to our propositions while the other levels are often out of sync with each other, out of sync with the world in massive bullshitting. And we are like, ah, I need to do something about this. And we think, I, what I got to do is keep changing my beliefs or get the right beliefs. And ah, and that's like a person in therapy who, who thinks, I just have to say to myself, don't be stubborn, don't be stubborn. And that'll, that's all I need to do, right? And it doesn't work. Right. And so we're suffering. We're suffering. So I guess uh, that brings up the question, and how do we access or cultivate wisdom through these different types of knowing, perspectival and participatory in particular? And I'm now thinking about this explosion in mindfulness and embodiment and, you know, in coaching. In a way, coaching is, um, you know, something that's come about in the last 30, 40 years. And, but even in coaching recently, there's been an evolution, you know, that oh, it needs to be somatic, embodied, mindful. Yes, yes, um, yes. And, and we need to embrace these lost ways of knowing. So it seems to be, come, you know, kind of coming through. So I just wonder if you, yeah. how, you know, what is the role in, in um, mindfulness and movement in, in cultivating wisdom, uh, in cultivating our perspectival and participatory knowing, uh, which then will lead to, you know, like recapturing uh, meaning and well-being and I'm also thinking that you talk about meta-awareness as well yeah, uh, yeah. In, in your work yeah. yeah well that's great um, so just notice first of all who we're talking to because you're a coach which means you're already not trying to just give people beliefs you're a really bad coach if that's all you're doing 
I mean, I, I mean, like, so I, I talk a lot about the language of training and how it differs from the language of explaining. And I've talked a lot with Nick, uh, Nick Winkleman, and he, you know, he wrote the book, The Language of Coaching. He's a sports coach, but it, the, the, the principles we're talking about here generalize. And I've done, and I've also done, you know, in some of my work, I've looked into the research on this because first of all, what you're trying to do is you're more like the therapist. You're trying to give people the requisite skills that they're lacking, right? They come to you precisely because they have often uh, belief. Now you might say, well, some of their core beliefs need to be changed. Yeah, uh, that's true, but they don't know how to do that, right? Simply telling them what their core beliefs, here, you could imagine if this all was to coaching. Here's your four incorrect core beliefs. Here's the correct beliefs. You're done, go away. That's like, oh no, that's not gonna help. So first of all, you're already situated at the procedural level because they do not know how to properly get an optimal grip on the world because, right? So they, they don't know, they, they don't know how the skills. And then even as you start to give them the skills, you're probably aware that they don't have the perspectival knowing they don't know, right? Right. The, the correct salience landscaping to get the optimal grip, the situational awareness. So they know where, when, to what degree to apply their skills. Skills have to be applied with what Pascal called finesse. You can't just apply them, you have to apply them with the, the spirit of finesse, which is different from the spirit of geometry, the spirit of calculation, right? So how do we get people that situational awareness so they can finesse the application or the acquisition of their skills? Because often they need to acquire skills that they don't have, right? Now, they're not going to do all that unless that maps into uh, the, the, the process by which they're assuming agency in the world. You have to get to the participatory knowing. So when I talk to Nick Winkleman, for example, he talks about um, embodied inactive metaphor. We talked to him and I about, so he's trying to get, let's say he's trying to get a runner to, 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 to run better. And so you can tell them all the belief, you can tell them all the science, like, can and that does, no, that might help a little. You can tell them you need to learn these certain skills and so go do these exercises, build these muscles and do this. And that helps. Those routine, routines are a way of building skills. But then he, do, he does something that he thinks in this way, he calls it the language of coaching is actually crucial. Um, and you notice how it'll be a perspectival participatory thing. He says, okay, when you're starting to run, I want you to be an airplane that's taking off. And then as you start to lift your nose up, I want you to picture yourself, see the perspectival knowing, as if you were running up a hill rather than running straight. And so the person enacts, they become an airplane taking off and then, right, so notice the perspectival change, the point of view of an airplane taking off, and they're assuming an identity, right? And then they move to the perspective of a person, but what's the perspective? Running up a hill, so a different kind of identity. And what that does is that triggers the right situational awareness. It triggers the right participatory knowing. The right affordances open up, and they see and they feel what to do as they know who they should be and how they should interact with the world. Now, imagine doing that not just for running a race, but running your life. Mm. Yeah, so so like a, a way of being or a metaphor that yeah. uh, would feel incredibly um, meaningful or it would matter to somebody if that could be offered that would catalyze yeah. 
you know, someone's development and allow them to embody that, that would change the very way they see the world and even their words as, you know, as if they actually speak from that metaphor rather than about yeah. it. Notice what's happening. The metaphor is spoken to you in language, propositional, and then it ramifies through the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory, and then aligns them. So you're right. What you're finding relevant in the world is reliably changed, and you move into a different kind of connectedness to yourself, to the world, and potentially to other people. And do you think that? Um... Because this is, you know, I know you speak about flow as well, and I'm, I'm very curious about the possibilities of how we can begin to access these different ways of knowing, you know, this yeah. beautiful example of an embodied metaphor, but particularly how that can become something, um, you know, not like an act, you know, that's, that's, that's maintained per se, but like something that lands naturally. And like yeah. I said, becomes a, a place where I'm, you know, I'm articulating from poetically and, and, and kind of spontaneously. And, um, but there's not just for the sake of it, but there's a kind of um, an intelligence, a dynamic intelligence in that, that I yeah. believe could be useful in helping us collaborate more collectively and effectively and tapping into creativity. So, yes. And this is the thing that's central on my mind right now. Um, so let me give you a, 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 a story from my own life, uh, because I think that'll give people a narrative is a great way of giving people this access. You have to be careful, though, because like any, if we try to make anyone practice the God that will save us, we will eventually turn it into the demon that will possess us. So um, but nevertheless. Right. So I had taken up Tai Chi Chuan um, and I was doing it because I was looking for wisdom. I was doing it for that. And, and um, so, and so I was doing it religiously. I wasn't just doing the practice. I was attending a community, right? I was reading the text and not just reading the text. I was reading them religiously. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean by that in a, in a minute or two. Right. And so, I, and, you know, and then, you know, Taoism is basically the religion of flow. You learn like when you're doing Tai Chi, you get into the flow state and you, you and you what you find is a repertoire. It's almost like you become a connoisseur. You, you sometimes there's the real hot flow. This is the one that people are most familiar with when you're in the flow state and you but you can tell you're exerting tremendous metabolic energy to do that. Right. So it's a very much an excitatory flow state. But also when you're doing Tai Chi Chuan, you also get these very cool, almost cold flow states. But I want to use cool because I want to play on the word cool because you're like in cool, like in cool jazz and you're, you're flowing and you're almost whisper quiet. And it's more of, you know, it's, it's more, it's a more of a yin flow than a yang flow to use. And you, so you're developing this. And so that has this aesthetic and it's beautiful and you're in the flow state, which is so optimal. And so I, that was enough for me. I was just doing it for those reasons. And then, uh, and this was a long time ago, and I was in grad school, and then my, my friends and colleagues came up to me, and in, in grad school, everybody thinks that, feels that they're an imposter, they don't really belong there, and they're just waiting for that moment when everybody else figures it out, right, so you're all like this, right, um, and uh, they came to me, and they said, what's going on with you, and I thought, oh, no, they're going to find out I don't really belong here, right, I was, right? And, and, um, and I said, well, what do you mean, and they said, you're different, the way you argue is different, the way you're thinking and speaking is different. You're much more balanced and flexible, and you're much more sort of connected and flowing. And then I thought, 
oh, I hadn't realized it, but the Tai Chi Chuan was so designed by a wisdom tradition that what it was doing to me wasn't staying located within the practice of Tai Chi Chuan. It was designed to be wise. It was designed to percolate through my psyche and permeate through my life with a life of its own beyond my consciously driving it. It, it took on a life of its own and it inhabited me and then it transformed the ways I inhabited the world. And then my life has been to try and figure out what other practices, and it's not just a practice, it's a whole ecology of practices, what ecologies of practices will percolate through my psyche and permeate through my life such that other people would recognize it in me, not just me subjectively and egocentrically. And so that, that is, that's for me, the fundamental question. The question is, I mean, the question, again, if we go back to the moral obligation I laid upon all of us, which is, how do I, how do I improve this person? That even sounds the wrong way of putting it, but I'm stumbling right now. But how do I, how do I help this person improve their life perhaps in a way that will, you know, percolate through their psyche and permeate through their lives so that they become a place, a, you know, the, the, the ripple in a pond from which a response to the meaning crisis radiates out that other people can catch. That to me is the primary question. The thing about it is, and this is why I want to just fulfill that one little point. Religion comes from religio to connect, to be connected. That's what the word literally means. And what religions are, are religions are ways in which we use inactive imagery, like, like the coaching of the person running. So, say we, I want to use Corbin's term, the imaginal, not the imaginary. Imaginary is when you form pictures in your head. That's not what the person who was doing when they were running. They were doing what we do when we're playing. When children are pretending, when a child picks up a stick and the cover off you know, the, the garbage can and says, now I'm a Roman soldier, they're pretending. They're not forming an image in their head. They're assuming an identity right? They're assigning identities and they're engaging in play. Play is the way in which we develop. That's the place where we engage in the transformation of our perspectival and our participatory knowing, and where we start to cultivate in safety the procedures we need that could potentially percolate out, right? Permeate out into lives, percolate through our psyche. So religion is enacted imagery. It's, it's, it's imaginal. What we're doing, you know what augmented reality is? Like when you use virtual reality to augment your ability to detect re real reality, like in a heads-up display for a jet pilot, there's stuff being projected onto uh, the windshield so that they can notice things that they, their unaided perception can't. I want you to think of religion as imaginally augmented reality that allows you to seriously play with the procedural, perspectival, and participatory machinery so you can undergo that kind of transformation that will percolate through your psyche and permeate through your life. And Taoism is a religious philosophical framework that I realized was doing that. It's not the only one. And so I want to understand what makes those work that way because working that way is what we need in order to address the meaning crisis. Yeah. Uh, beautiful, beautiful. And I, I love the synchronicity because the, the imaginal is something I've become very fascinated with. Right. And I, I you know, I, I, I'm 
want to acknowledge my somewhat, uh, I don't want to say rudimentary understanding, but I know that word is a, is a nuanced word and Corban's yeah. work is, you know, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, well, it's kind of like hard to approach in some ways, but um, it, at, at least I know from my own explorations of the imaginal deep imagination um, is that it, it brought in meaning. But interestingly, yeah. as soon as yeah. I started to play with it, it's as if the world became more poetic and, and, yes. and like more uh, the, the spectrums of colors filled out, you know, as if it was a flatland before and then suddenly it became more That's 3D, good. 4D. Yeah. Um, it, it changed the very way that I was, the, the, the way I was perceiving the world around me and the way that, you know, so I th- I'm thinking, you know, I, I'd say the salience yeah. landscape, I think that's the term you used, changed yeah. as yeah. I started to embrace the, uh, this idea, even the idea of the imaginal um, yeah. opens things up. But um, how, yeah, so, so how would you invite people listening to, to play with the imaginal? You gave the example of religion and your journey with Taoism. What, what are the ways we could do that? And, and these ecologies of practice as well. So, Joel, that's, 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 that's the question that besets me and my work. <laughs> I'm trying to understand it both as a scientist and as a participant and as somebody trying to promote various communities of practices that are springing up. So, you know, communities of practice, you know, trying to integrate mindfulness and movement and enacted metaphor and other and perspectival transformation, right? Uh, and, and, And cultivate these ecologies of practices. They're springing up all over the place. And so I get to do participant observation, participant experimentation in them. And then what I'm trying to do so this is very aspirational on my part, is I'm trying to figure out a really good answer to that question. And, and that sounds like, yeah, of course, duh. Well, then let, slow down. What I, what I mean is one answer, and again, I'm not precluding this. I'm not the village atheist, right? Uh, is you may be able to turn to an ecology of practices that's homed within one of the existing you know, world religions, one of the axial age religions or, or their children like Taoism or Christian, and you may be able to turn back there, turn to it. That's what metanoia originally meant. When we talk about conversion turning, we mean like turning your perspectival knowing and turning your sense of identity, not just turning to a new set of beliefs to have, right? If you turn to that and you, you, you it's possible you could find, or maybe return to it, you could find some place that homes an ecology of practices that does this for you. So I want to be clear that I don't deny that. However, I do want to also acknowledge the other side. Many people, for many reasons, there's sets of reasons, do not find that a viable option. They do not find that a viable option, the nuns. And what they're doing is they're autodidactically and in a fragmentary and often incoherent fashion without paying attention to the relevant science, right? They're trying to cobble together the religion of me, that's typically what people say when they say, I'm spiritual, not religious. What they mean is, I have a religion, and the religion is the religion of me, right? Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that an autodidact can't, you know, make it work, because I'm not talking about what's possible. I'm talking about what's probable. What's probable is you will, or I would, fall into all of that self-deceptive behavior that we is happening largely outside of your awareness and your propositional knowing, and you're going to fall into 
what most autodidacts fall into. You're going to fall into confirmation bias, my side bias. You're going to enhance narcissism while, while doing spiritual bypassing and all this stuff that is rightly being criticized of people who are, are pursuing spirituality but not religion. I mean, it's not just that the religious people are, you know, moaning or, or grieving the loss of their power. They're doing that. I acknowledge that. But they also have a point. There's a point is there's a reason why religion was pervasive and lasted for millennia, right? Because it, it has machinery in it um, that helps to avoid all of the dangers of autodidactism. But let's say that most people don't find the religious worldview one that is imaginably viable for them. And that's the issue. For me, it's not so much that people believe it or not believe it, is that they, they, the, that language isn't imaginably viable to them. They can't translate it into a way of life that's situated within the scientific worldview. People that pretend that, that they can get out of the scientific worldview, and there's all different kinds of pretense from sort of, you know, young earth creationists, flat earthers, you know, all I don't believe in science, I, some new age, all is mine, like, right? That's, I mean, that is, that, that is a, like, trying to do that while you sit on your computer is just such a performative contradiction. It's like, um, like, tr it, like, imagine if we removed right now from everything that's happening around us, everything that's connected to science and technology, what would we have left? We'd have our naked bodies, um, our speech, perhaps, some of our emotions, a lot of the information would be gone. A lot of our beliefs would be skewed and radically uh, incoherent. Fact. Like that's not a viable option, mm -hmm. right? So they, they find the, and they have moral criticisms uh, of the religion. So they have moral criticisms, which I didn't say much about, but that's not because I don't think they're important. They are. They have moral criticisms of the existing religions. They find them imaginally inept or impoverished because the religions have also become belief systems Right, that don't talk, don't don't address, don't evoke the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory, and they don't see how that religious worldview fits their scientific, fits the scientific worldview. They can do one of two things: they can either embrace the scientific worldview unquestionably, and then they'll suffer the meaning crisis because the scientific worldview has no account. Like the scientific worldview makes this wonderful worldview in which science, how science itself exists, is not explained. You know, we don't have a scientific explanation of how we do science, what science is, what the world must be like in order for there to be science, how our minds must work. Truth depends on meaning and not just spoken meaning, skilled meaning, right? Perspectival meaning. The, the scientists can't observe everything. I can go on and on about this. So the scientific worldview won't give you the meaning and the wisdom you want. It'll give you knowledge and knowledge is important. I am a scientist. Again, I believe in this, but it doesn't give you wisdom. So or you can pretend the scientific worldview doesn't apply to you because, I don't know, everything is being run by leprechauns or something strange like that, and you craft your own bizarro metaphysics. Neither one of those are viable and, and, and long-term satisfying, and there's research to back that up, by the way. So what the question becomes, sorry, I've done a long thing to reformulate the question is, how for people who have come to the realization that none of the religions are viable, just becoming an atheistic adherent to right. the scientific worldview won't satisfy them. The autodidactism of kind of a new age self-made religion of me is ultimately not likely to be functional and it's liable to be malfunctional and 
conducive to narcissism and all kinds of spiritual bypassing. How do I avoid all of those and yet create a ecology of practices within a supportive home that allows me to reduce foolishness and enhance flourishing? That's the question. <laughs> You're gonna tell us the answer now. <laughs> because, no, but I mean, I just feel like um, it's an it's an immense question, and um, it's one that we should dedicate ourselves to solving. And um, and as you pose it, I can notice in me, I feel um, excitement, but I also feel like, oh God, you know, yeah, yeah. shit. We we've, we've got to answer that question soon. Um, you know, I kind of get a sense of like, maybe that's the work of our times and how do we integrate the best of um, science? Is it about integrating the best of science and what religion brought into some, you know, new coherent ecology of practice or, um, yeah. you know, because I, I think I like, just I think about a lot of my friends who are de- incredibly sincere, but uh, perhaps are falling into, that that middle way you described of like the religion of me in some way, you know, where yeah. it's very easy to um, avoid the difficult stuff or deceive oneself. So yeah, the, the, the and the the difficulty with the religion of me is it also, I mean, we're getting into really the possibility of self bullshitting, and and notice that how social media gives you the illusion that you're stepping outside of it, but all, all, ultimately what it can let you do is, for, is find other me's and you can do a mutual admiration echo chamber and bubble, right? In which you're actually not challenging any of that at all, but, but you're, oh, but I'm with other people, but that's not what we're talking about, right? You know, like you, you, I mean, it's like, again, go back for coaching. If all you did was affirm people, right? And never correct them, you're a really bad coach. You're a really bad coach, right? And, you're, and they're not learning. You have to put people into the zone of proximal development if they're actually going to really learn. Uh, you have to challenge them if you, if you want them to get into the flow state. Flow state. So he, he, the, the, the answer has to be, it has to take, it has to learn from the science as much as possible. So one of the advantages we have over the traditional religions is we now have science. And the science, and I mean, this is the science that's studying so it's not just self-promotional on my part. Cognitive science is the science that's studying the meaning. Cognitive science, cognitive psychology, neuroscience, right? Uh, these are, right, and philosophy. These are, and they all, those are all part of cognitive science, by the way. They are all studying, they are the places where people are studying these issues of meaning making uh, and meaning in life and how does it work? So we have to listen to them. We can't ignore them. Uh, the chances that we'll do well while we ignore them and just like, you know, pick up some parochial practice and think that that's going to be the God that saves us um, is uh, uh, the chances are very low. So we have to listen to the science, but, but we also have to, and I'm, and I'm using this wor- these verbs liberally, we have to listen to the religious traditions. Even though they may not be viable to us, they present things that were for a very long time viable to a lot of people. We have to listen to them. We have to listen to their ecologies of practices. We have to lear- listen and learn, just like we have to listen and learn from the science. And then together, sorry, this is sounding like a Hallmark card, but together, but we're already doing it. We're already trying to do it. We have to build real communities that challenge us, that challenge us out of our narcissism and our egocentrism, out of our bullshit, 
and also challenge themselves so they don't fall into like echo chambering by talking to other communities. We need to form communities of practices and they're already forming, right? In which we are cultivating ecologies of practices that sit within and can be legitimated by a cognitive science that puts them within the overarching scientific worldview. The cognitive science can show them how there's a home within the scientific worldview for an ecology of practices. But this, the, we, we need a network of communities of practice. So I call this the religion that's not a religion. We need the religion that's not a religion. And what I, what I, what I say we need to do is we need to steal the culture. And what do I mean by that? The way, and, and so here's how I'm learning from one of the great uh, world religions, Christianity. What did Christianity do? Did it take control of the government? Did it throw a revolution? Did it do a sec socioeconomic policy change? No, what it did was it went and built new communities of practices in which people had new ways of seeing and being, new perspectival and participatory knowing, the way of agape, the way of the logos integrated together. They built these communities of practices and those, net, those communities networked together and bottom up, the culture was stolen and the Roman empire became Christianity. And then that went on to become a new kind of civilization as the Roman empire fell. I mean, you got the mm -hmm. Byzantine empire on one side and you had Western Christ Christendom on the other, a new civilization. We need a religion of religion that will allow us to steal the culture. If we try to solve this at the level of adversarial political policymaking, we will be locked into the propositional knowledge. We will be locked into the position. We will have frozen our identity. We will be locked into our point of view. We will have locked and blocked all the meaning-making machinery, and we will not find the answer there, even though we try harder and harder and get more and more extreme and more and more violent. And I'm talking about all sides on this. I'm not picking a political side. As we try to desperately deal with the meaning crisis and the way it is it, it, the way it is basically hamstringing us so we cannot make the changes in how we see and how we are, our seeing and our being in the world that are needed if we're going to really address the meta crisis that we're facing. We have all the science about the meta crisis, we have to, we, but we won't make the changes because people will not change their way of life if they are starving for meaning. They are right. in a scarcity mentality. And we know from scarcity mentality research that they, that means they become very rigid, become inflexible, and they really hold on to what little they have. They try to hold on whatever little meaning they have, even if it's malfunctioning, even if it's fragmentary, they will hold. And so, but here's what people will do. People will give up. They'll allow dramatic changes to their lifestyle. If you make them trust that you can offer them enhanced meaning in life. How do I know this? Because people do this whenever they deliberately decide to have a child. Because when they have a child, their subjective oh, yeah. well-being collapses. Their finances go down, sleep goes down, health goes down, social relationships goes down, the romantic relationship is, is strained. Everything gets worse reliably. Why do people do it? Because, and this is what they say to you, because it makes their life more meaningful. Right. And what is it? Is the kid a socioeconomic gain? No. What is it is I am relevant to something beyond myself. I'm connected to 
right? Something that has an inherent value. I am connected to something bigger than myself. I am mattering to something beyond myself. Hmm. That's, that's a beautiful place, I think, for us to bring this to a close. I, I, um, I, it makes me think of like, how can we collectively have a child in some way? I don't know if that's yeah. quite the right metaphor, but, yes. um, you know, I think it is. That I, I, I'm, you know, do we have, do we, I just hope we have time, you know, that's the yeah. thing with the, yeah, that's the one quick, if we had like thousands of years, you know, it'd be fine. Yeah. And, um, just, I just want to, there's just an hour at time. Um, I wish I would have asked you in one sentence, maybe if you have time now, what, yeah. what do you mean by the imaginal just in one sentence? Cause I, yeah. I, I, I this yeah. is just my pure personal interest. Cause I, I love this topic. And so for me, the imaginal is, um, like I said, it's not to have an image. It, 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 it is the, it's when we, we use the word imagine, we mean it to make a picture or we mean to pretend. Intend, it, attention, pretending, those words are related. Pretending is how you practice by playing with it, the machinery of perspectival and participatory transformation so that you can better connect to yourself, to other people in the world. That's why the more intelligent an organism is, the more it needs to play and that we, we, we engage in develop, we satisfy our needs for development, for growing up by playing, serious play. So the imaginal is, right, the serious play that allows us the development into a more connected way of seeing and being. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, and then my last thing is like, where can we find out more about your work? Cause uh, I imagine a lot of people will be wanting to know that. I mean, so, uh, you know, I mean, you, if you want, people can, uh, you know, they can look at my published scientific work. Uh, I've also have a book that's out there uh, called zombies in a Western, uh, Western civilization, a 21st century crisis with Christopher Massapietro and Philip Misovic. Uh, but Probably the best place is my YouTube video series, uh, series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which is the lecture series about everything we've been talking about. And then Voices with Verveke, where I, I mean, we didn't get a chance. There's a way of talking to each other that isn't about just communicating. It's a way of imaginally communing with people. And I call that dialogos. And so I do Voices with Verveke with, I try to both exemplify this dialogos and, uh, and get in people who are addressing the meaning crisis. And so I have the Voices with Verveke series. Um, and then I have, if people are interested in sort of bridging between those more, more sort of existential series into the cognitive science, I have two cognitive science series. And what I tried to do there was to put the, I try to weave, how do you make a scientific argument within dialogical communing? So how do you do scientific communication within dialogical communing? So the first is untangling the world not with Greg Enriquez, which is Greg and I doing this about consciousness. What is consciousness? What's the best cognitive science? And how can we uh, internalize that? And then just recently finished up um, the elusive I, capital I, uh, the nature and function of the self with Christopher Master Pietro and Greg Enriquez about what's, what's, what is this thing we call the self? Um, and what does God say about us? What are the existential implications? What are the spiritual implications? This Thursday, um, Peter Lindbergh has a, a, a YouTube channel called The Stoa, and mm. Chris and Greg and I will be there at 6, 6 p.m. Eastern uh, Daylight Time, 
answering questions about the Elusive Eye series, if any of uh, your, your viewers get to watch some of it or have seen it. Um, so that, those, here, there, those are some ways. And, and keep your eye open. Uh, there's the, the, the book is hopefully going to be coming out this year, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And the, the, the thing I'm most passionate about is I'm going to have another series, as I hope, as comprehensive uh, as um, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis called After Socrates and the Cultivation of Wisdom and Meaning. Um, all about this emergence, because one of the th one of the things that's arising with mindfulness and movement are all these dialogical practices of circling and authentic relating, and insight dialogue and inquiry. Why are all these dialogical practices emerging? Because in addition to mindfulness, in addition to movement, we need dialogical practices. Because dialogical communing is where we build community, and the communities of practices is how we're going to steal the culture, and awaken from the meaning crisis yeah beautiful and 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 w produce wisdom and i think those that's yes. what's happening in coaching those dialogue yeah. dialogical conversations circling authentic relating inquiry yeah. that's yeah. proliferating yeah 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 so hey john uh fantastic you know fantastic i just want to say a big big thank you um th that you're here and you're sharing your work and and best wishes with everything you've just named going forward as well Thank you, Joel. It's been great. Here we are. We're at the end of the podcast. Just a, a heads up again. If you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. 